The Classically Black podcast shows listeners the world of classical music through the eyes of Delaney and Katie, two black classical musicians on the rise looking to share their perspectives with a new and interesting twist. The Classically Black podcast recently celebrated its fifth anniversary. What better way to celebrate than by launching merch? Featuring original artwork, the nine-piece merch collection includes t-shirts, tote bags, stickers, and more. You can take a look and make your purchases at classicallyblackpodcast.com slash store. I'm Loki Karuna, and this is Triloquy. Thanks so much for tuning in. Shout out to the returning listeners. Appreciate your support more and more each week. And shout out to the new listeners. Triloquy is a show built to decolonize the idea of classical music by highlighting some of the latest news in the field, showcasing my dialogues with folks working to shift the status quo of so-called classical music in their own way, and by offering a weekly Triloquy where I get to keep it true and real with y'all for a few minutes at the end. For more information on Triloquy, to check out past opuses, and to contribute to the cause, visit our website, T-R-I-L-L-O-Q-U-Y.org. Nick and Zach from the ensemble Invoke join me today to talk about their unique spin on chamber music and the ways in which it's reaching audiences outside of the typical classical box. Looking forward to sharing that conversation with y'all. After that, I'm going to offer a Triloquy inspired by one of my recent Instagram posts. I was a sub posting or vague booking, as some people say, when I made the post. But I'll offer some specifics here since I love y'all so much. But (laughs) for right now, I want to send over a huge congratulations to my homies Katie and Delaney at the Classically Black Podcast. We've collaborated here on Truloquy a few times. They've been on the show. I've been over there on their show a few times, hoping to get another collaboration on the books for this season. But if you don't know them, they present classical music and conversations surrounding it through an unapologetically black lens. The show is tons of fun. I always get a good laugh in and they're doing some really great work toward decolonization in their own way, especially for the younger generation, the Gen Zers and all those youngsters out there. So as you heard at the top of the show, they recently turned five and have some merch for y'all to check out. But they also were featured in an article from I Care If You Listen that I wanted to shine a light on today. So the headline here is to podcast or not to podcast reflections from the hosts of Classically Black. First of all, I want to send thanks uh, to uh, everybody over there, Katie and Delaney and the team at uh, I Care If You Listen for the Triloquy shout out in the article. Um, Also, a huge shout out to Black Music Scene, which is a production of the Black Orchestral Network. So it goes without saying that there are several of us out here and we are all in support of one another. Great to be a part of an unofficial collective of black podcasters in uh, so-called classical music. I won't go through this whole article, but I did want to offer my responses to some of the key questions that Katie and Delaney posed 
uh, at the end of the article for uh, folks looking to start their own podcast or even just considering it. So the first of those questions is about frequency. How often do you want to release episodes? So for those of you who have been here with me for a while, you know that Triloquy comes out every week. It used to be Wednesdays. Now it's Thursday afternoons, or early evenings, but I really do believe in consistency, even uh, and especially over the holidays when everyone else is taking a break. I think it's great for creators to have something for folks to, um, you know, check out while everyone is digesting food after the Thanksgiving meal or sitting around on Christmas afternoon, you know, playing with your new headphones or whatever. So my word of advice is to have a schedule that your listeners can really count on when it comes to how often you want to release episodes. The second question that Katie and Delaney pose um, is sort of about audience. Who will benefit from your podcast? You know, I'm very humbled and grateful to see the measurable impact that Triloquy has made across the industry and even beyond outside of so-called classical music. So my goal here is to plant seeds and to open minds on just a different approach, not just highlighting composers who aren't always at the front, but completely rethinking our use of the phrase classical music. I don't always hammer down on that point week to week, but I really do believe that our current use of that phrase is the result of white supremacist culture that has to be dismantled. When those of us who live here in the U.S., start using that phrase classical music as it relates to jazz and spirituals, blues, hip hop, uh, bluegrass, country, you name it. We'll begin to see that decolonization of classical music at play, you know, and what that concept can really mean for us. So if you're thinking about, you know, again, getting into this podcasting game, think really hard about who you want to benefit and the purpose of the thing and the first place. For me, it's more mission-driven than audience-driven. Uh, I want everybody to be a part of uh, what I'm talking about and what I share here. But, you know, having that in mind, I think is really important. So I'm glad that Katie and Delaney asked that question um, at the end of this article. And then finally, um, they encourage us all to think about tone and structure. They say here, making the content of your show engaging is one thing, but how you present it is also important. So in this uh, latest season of the Triloquy podcast, I've made things a little bit shorter. It's just me these days. Shout out to all of Scott's hard work through seasons one through four. Um, and it focuses these days on interviews primarily. Now, this has changed since, you know, the early days of Triloquy, and it may continue to change in the future. But having a good idea on structure is a really vital aspect of building a podcast. So I definitely agree with the ladies there as well. I'll have the uh, full article in the description of this episode. If you've never checked out the Classically Black podcast, I definitely encourage you to give it a try. And if uh, you're looking to dive into this podcasting game, girl, good luck, because it's crowded <laughs> out here. Um, so congratulations to each of you listening for being a part of one of the biggest shows at the intersection of classical music, race, contemporary culture, and the future um, as audience members, I'm honored each and every week to see how many thousands of you are spending the time with me every week. And of course, also congrats to Katie and Delaney for everything they've accomplished over at Classically Black over these past five years. Looking forward to joining them on the show as a guest again in the future. And I'll see about getting them here on Triloquy. All right. Well, I think uh, with that, we'll go ahead and jump into this week's conversation featuring Zach and Nick from Invoke. I'll read from their website. It says, Invoke 
Invoke strives to successfully dodge even the most valiant attempts at genre classification. The multi-instrumental quartet encompasses traditions from across America, including bluegrass, Appalachian fiddle tunes, jazz, and minimalism. Fueled by their passion for storytelling, Invoke weaves all of these styles together to form a unique contemporary repertoire featuring original works composed by and for the group. So a few weeks ago, they released an album called Evolve and Travel, which does a really great job of showcasing how they're decolonizing classical music, even without using um, that terminology. I think that work is still being done, and I'm I'm, uh, really happy to have it on my radar now. So uh, the three of us, we talk about um, how the group was formed. We talk about genre in general and all sorts of good stuff. So I hope y'all enjoy this dialogue. To get us there, here's a clip from their latest album. This tune is called Dust Bowl, music performed by Invoke to get us into my dialogue with the groups Nick and Zach. It's really up to us, you know, as members of the of the community to to help it survive. I don't, you know, the I guess the short answer to your question is I think it needs to evolve and change and update in uh, in order to stay relevant. Um, we can't be doing the same things we were doing, you know, hundred years ago, two hundred years ago. Um, but you know, I see a lot of interesting things and exciting things. You know. Um, you know, we've been a group for about 10 years. And when we started, uh, you know, there was no such thing as a music entrepreneurship or music business track or anything. When we were in school, um, you know, we had great mentors and teachers and everything. But, um, you know, now, now that's much more common. People are understanding that y- you can't just, uh, you know, as I said, do the same thing that we were doing 100 years ago. Um, and expect it to work as well as it did then or work in the same way. Um, so, you know, we're doing, a, we're seeing a lot of uh, progress in that way, you know, new groups coming together, new orchestras working in different ways than they have and playing different material and um, different composers. And so that's really exciting to see that, uh, you know, see that progress. What do you think, Zach, about the classical industry at large is it doomed to fail or is there still hope (laughs) uh i agree with nick a a lot of those statements like it has changed and is changing i I wonder if it will change enough in time although i do I, i do feel like in this general trajectory i think like when we started our group and a lot of other groups are kind of doing the same thing. It's like we're realizing that we have all these like very fine-tuned skills that are, you know, you know, provided by like the traditional music school training. But I think there's this general push towards like realizing that we're not just an orchestra, we're not just a string quartet. We are like musicians and we all have interesting voices and 
stories to tell that are more important than perhaps the traditional ones that we've been trained on. And I don't know, I, I feel like there's this uh, hotbed of huge amount of musical talent and uh, skill that is starting to kind of become unlocked. And I'm excited for that. I'm excited for all those like amazing musicians to, to start, you know, a lot more people are writing their own songs, arranging their own tunes, connecting with their communities that, that they grew up with in a way that was like, I have these like skills as a, as a classical musician, I'm going to use them for, for what I want to do and for the people that I serve. So I think that's really exciting as opposed to kind of like just locking into predetermined institutions, which I think was maybe more prevalent from the like, you know, eighties through the two thousands or even before that. So yeah, I'm, ex I'm excited for that. I think, I think there's hope essentially. Nick, you use the phrase members of the community. I wonder if you can speak more to that, you know, considering everything that Invoke has done over the past decade, um, do you intentionally maintain proximity to so-called classical music? Do you feel an obligation to? I, I wonder if you can speak to that. That's yeah, an interesting question. I think the the short answer is yes, you know, yes and yes and um, you know, it's it's classical music is, you know, it's hard first of all, it's hard to define as it, you know in the year 2023 um because you know the like what what do we what do we call is it our is what we're doing classical music kind of not really but definitely inspired by um and so i feel like you know when, when we approach classical music or we approach kind of you know modern acoustic art music or whatever you want to call it mm -hmm. um there is there's an inspiration from you know kind of what came before and the training that we've had um you know and the mentors and uh, and teachers that we've had that we really respect uh, and so i think there's a little bit of just kind of like paying homage to that um that kind of uh background that we have uh but as far as you know having like trying to connect with the com a community it's it's a community of musicians and in our case you know even the classical musicians that we consider part of our kind of you know direct community are doing things that are closer to what we're doing than um you know what you, what you would consider kind of the the boilerplate like classical music career join an orchestra or be a soloist or whatever i think we just tend to kind of gravitate towards people who uh are excited about new things and excited about different things um and so that that's kind of the the direct community that i think we involve ourselves with most directly in, in terms of other musicians so what do you think about reframing just this entire idea of classical zach i mean in in my career um you know i've been able to build some awareness around uh the idea that classical is relative so in the same way you have indian classical um, uh, you know, Chinese classical traditions that are thousands years old, you know, we have classical, so-called classical traditions here in the United States as well. I would, I would solidly put what Invoke does into that American classical category. Um, thoughts, uh, maybe disagreements or, <laughs> or what? No, I think that's actually like, uh, I think having a perspective like 
that that's really great. There's something about the way you just framed that that like makes kind of sense. That it doesn't. It, it is just another. You know, I feel like the way we describe classical music is very, especially in Western classical music, is very kind of binary or something like that. Very, um, yeah, in in a box. But it can just be another genre that we all participate in or don't. It doesn't mm-hmm. have to be like the end all for. Uh, maybe that's because we have these institutions that like I'm talking like universities and things like that, that you go to, to learn classical music, as opposed to just going to music school to participate in the whole, in, in all of the genres that, that exists or, you know, and then we have like, we have like all these institutions that do classical music, but then we have like Berkeley and then Mm -hmm. that's one, you know, big one that does jazz. And then we don't have other, other places. Um, to just kind of go make music in the way that you want to and have access to those people that have great, you know, theory training or um, like chops on the violin, for instance, or if you want to know. Um, So, sorry, I really like the way you've kind of framed that as it. So I, I, I I do agree with that, that Invoke is very firmly in the American classical tradition. Um, And we're trying to, kind of explore other genres in our own way through that lens. And so, I, yeah, I don't really have a disagreement, but I, I like that um, that framing that you just used. It's very refreshing. And I appreciate your bringing up Berkeley um, with their, you know, jazz studies, because there are, you know, if only marginal, there are examples of ways and institutions through which you can explore things. I do know that um, you can study bluegrass at uh, East Tennessee State University, you know, something that um, as a Tennessean, I'm I'm very uh, uh, proud of. Um, But, you know, despite the uh, expansion that Invoke has done, I imagine that the path, at least at the beginning, looked more traditional than not uh, for the both of you. Uh, Zach, I wonder if you could talk about how you came to music in the first place, how you came to the to the violin, and then where the sort of uh, divergence happened along the way. Whoa, yeah. So, I mean, my f- my folks are very in involved, invested in music. My my grandfather, uh, great, like my great grandfather was a, a singer and like music, ethnomusicologist and collected, you know, went out ballad bagging and, and doing like kind of folk music. And it kind of trickled down to my grandparents who were both very involved in music. And my mother, my grandmother was a piano teacher and uh, my parents played music. So it was kind of just like my, we had a rule that I had to choose an instrument and then play it till I was 16. And then I could decide what I wanted to do after that. Um, so violin happened because we were watching Fiddler on the Roof. And uh, I was really obsessed with it. I was like four. And um, I lived in, at the time, my parents uh, were working in Russia. So I was in, I was in Russia. And uh, we had a friend that worked at the violin conservatory. And so they, they put me up in there. And uh, so I feel like I had a very, <laughs> and they're very traditional in terms of the, the conservatory kind of like music track progress that like even children in, in post-Soviet Russia had like growing up, it was very strict. Um, and then coming back to the States, it was like, there was like nothing in terms of that amount of like, uh, 
I moved back to Montana. So there was kind of no musical infrastructure whatsoever. Mm. Um, but I still had very like, yeah, traditional Western art music upbringing. Um, until I got to the to University of Maryland, where I met the other guys, which, you know, I didn't really like branch out from that genre wise, but there was definitely a lot of like weird kind of like encouragement to, to do things off the, uh, off the beaten path. Like I remember orchestra at UMD had, um, had all of us memorized like Appalachian spring and then dance, um, the full, like the full orchestra choreographed moving around stage, no stance for 45 minutes. Um, with like, uh, is it Liz Lehrman, the choreographer? And it was just like, oh, it's like, oh, if you can do this with an orchestra, you can do weird stuff with a string quartet. That doesn't seem that off. And uh, so, and then what happened was we were, we've had formed, Invoke had formed, and we were kind of like wanted to be, you know, like like the Kronos Quartet, like, you know, cause they mm. were in residence at University of Maryland for a long time. They had been coming, we're like, that's super cool like the, the voices they're getting to play and all of the, you know, the way they do, it just seems like very authentic and, and cool. So let's do that. That seems like a, a better path for a string quartet, but then kind of along the way, I don't know, we just kind of ended up, Nick had a four string banjo and Carl had played mandolin and we were looking for new things to do. And we were listening to goat rodeo sessions with Chris Teeley and Edgar Meyer and, um, Yo-Yo Ma and Stuart Duncan we were just like oh, what would be cool if this group existed not just as a super group but kind of as like an ongoing just group that exists and so we thought that we could uh, do that so that's wow. kind of that's kind of my I don't know it was, it was kind of very traditional upbringing and then when we get into Maryland maybe just like a, like a there's such a willingness to experiment and I didn't have much like skin in the game and I really loved chamber music. And so I was like, oh, this is cool. Let's just make music that we like to listen to. That seems to make a lot of sense. Yeah, Nick, I was actually going to ask you about the banjo. I'm, as a wind player, many of us are multi-instrumentalists. That's sort of a normal thing. But it seems like uh, for string players, especially violinists, you know, that that violin is really what you dedicate everything to. Was the banjo always a part of your life or did it just happen one day? The short answer is no, I, I didn't play. I didn't play banjo until we started the group. Um, oh, wow. And I played basically because we wanted because we wanted a banjo player. <laughs> so it ended up being me. But, um, you know, I went, you know, as, as Zach was mentioning, I had very similar kind of classical upbringing, but I did play, uh, you know, I just kind of dabbled in other instruments, guitar and played viola you know, it kind of towards the end of high school realized it was, you know, almost the same instrument. So I was like, oh, cool. You know, now, now I can tell everybody I'm a viola player. So I feel like it was always the, you know, the kind of trying to discover anything with, with strings that is new, that is kind of interesting and translating some skills and having to learn some new ones. So, uh, yeah, Zach mentioned my, my mom actually plays, uh, kind of Irish tenor style, uh, banjo and you know also piano and you know is just generally kind of musical uh, and so yeah so and so is my dad so that was in my family as i was growing up and so I, she had a banjo lying around 
and uh conveniently enough it the irish tenor or you know most tenors are tuned in fifths same as the violin mm-hmm. as opposed to five string banjo which is kind of a confusing for my brain open tuning so <laughs> i play kind of a bluegrass style on more of a irish tenor or like early jazz you know they, they were in a lot of like early um big bands uh, four string banjos mm-hmm. as kind of like the rhythm instrument so um so yeah that's kind of how i got started with that but you know i didn't play didn't play banjo until um until invoke basically and we started writing our own music to include that you talked about learning new skills beyond just the physical um, learning to play the banjo, those sorts of things. Were there artistic skills? Did you have to learn how to swing a little different? Or I wonder if you could speak to that. For the banjo specifically, you mean? Sure, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's the probably the hardest thing for, for me was the what they call the scrug style, um, three-finger picking style. Because, you know, I'd grown up doing like normal kind of strum guitar four chords in the truth songs and um and so the that style is something that i've always loved it's kind of like the you know i i feel like when i listen to bluegrass there's so much you know it's very simple but there's so much detail like there's so much happening um and very kind of fast paced and the arrangements are full and everything sounds really cool and i think a big reason for that in a lot of modern bluegrass is the um, is that style, the three finger kind of scrug style where there's always kind of banjo, just like n- noise and atmosphere happening. So that was an interesting skill to, to learn, you know, a lot of time with the metronome, a lot of time figuring out kind of my own roll patterns and picking patterns. Um, because, you know, five string, it makes a lot more sense because there's the, there's a drone string and then kind of your melody strings on four mm-hmm. string. It's kind of like every, everything has to play both roles. <laughs> so you know, figuring out my own voicings and, you know, trying to get my, and you know, it's something I'm still working on. So. Perfect practice makes perfect as they say, right? <laughs> <laughs> I think Zach, you can give himself enough credit. He's, he's always been a very, like, did like lots of jazz growing up on violin as well. And uh, like when I was in school and before in folk, it was like, Nick was also in a, <clears throat> I ran like one of the first times I ran into Nick, he was like in rehearsal with his metal band called Sextasy. He was the lead singer. So it's a, I feel like you got a diverse, you got a pretty diverse background in terms of different, different types of styles that Nick's been doing for a long time. I still have trouble with the style thing. It's not very, um, just listen a lot to, to old fiddler recordings and try to try to channel that energy. But it's, um, I think a lot of like great, like, folk fiddle players like they just have like a commitment to the sound that they have um which makes i think fiddle players one of the most interesting people to listen to it's like sometimes hard to me to pick out the great soloists on violin like and anybody you can kind of be like oh that's this person but sometimes a lot of the time i can't but with fiddle players you're like oh that's that guy that's that Mm -hmm. that's that person that's that yeah that's that style or sound. So I've been trying to hone that, but it's, it's really hard. Well, yeah, that's, yeah, not, not, I'll oh, go ahead. Yeah. No, I was, I was going to say that that's, what's interesting too, about what you were saying earlier, Loki, about, um, you know, bringing classical music kind of into a, into a new era or refreshing it or, you know, making it, making it something that, um, people kind of understand better. 
And I think that's actually one of the things that I've seen positive progress towards is more individual stylistic playing. Um, you know, and like you mentioned, Zach, it's like sometimes you can tell like who studied with who, you know, like I can tell mm -hmm. this person was a Galamian student or, you know, whatever or wh whoever. Um, but I think now now it's getting actually harder to tell and it's getting more interesting to listen to individual um, voices, uh, which I think, it, you know, is is helping in that in that regard as well. Yeah. Yeah, I, I was going to say, you know, not to not to name drop, maybe to name lift uh, the, the first time that I heard um, Mark O'Connor, like it just opened up a completely new door to to my life and, and to my ideas of music. Of course, you know, jazz and blues and how that can intersect with so-called classical was something that I was familiar with. But, you know, I think there are always so many doors that can be opened just with, you know, that one sound or that or that one recording. I, I wanted to ask you, Zach, you know, you talked a little bit about uh, the early days of Invoke, but I wonder if you could talk about the transition from Invoke as this weird ensemble doing its own thing on the weekends or whenever you have your free time to, you know, actually being recognized by audiences and, and creating recordings and really uh, solidifying yourself as an ensemble. Uh, well, I think when we started, we always, it's always been small. It's always been kind of a, a, a rolling snowball of goals that we like kind of put out for ourselves. So we were pretty like from the beginning, we've always, we've been pretty gung ho as a, as a group, like, uh, like, okay, we're going to, we're going to play Philip glass five because Kronos is coming to town and we're going to get a coaching with them. And that's going to be the beginning of our, like, and we'll do a concert. And we'll see what happens then. And that never actually real like became realized. But then because we had formed and we were rehearsing, um, someone had heard that we had formed a group and they were looking for a, 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 a new group to do shows that have you ever, DC has a really amazing uh, restaurant slash community gathering spot slash bookstore called Busboys and Poets. Um, and so hmm. they were university of Maryland had started a series at bus boys and poets. And, um, and so we were one of the groups that got to play there. So it became like, kind of was like, Oh, we have our first big concert at the end of the year. It's going to be like super well attended. And, um, and from there we were like, okay, well, this is totally viable. Let's, um, let's like do this. Let's try to like, try to do this. And as a string quartet, we knew that there was like residencies that we could get into. And so that kind of prompted us to, to start playing for that and applying for those once Jeff, our cellist was ready to like, once he had graduated. Um, so we were started to prep for that. And then kind of in the midst of that was when the banjo and mandolin came in and we were trying to, to figure out how to describe that to people. Um, and that kind of, I, I guess, I guess that kind of started our, our trajectory and then it was from there like six long years of kind of slogging in the um in the morass of um the classical music world to kind of describe to people what we do and whether that was important to describe to people what we do or not um rather than just be like you should just listen to us and then decide if you like it or not um and i think um i don't know I, I still feel like we 
like with this album, even though we've been making albums since 2015, um, I think this new album that we're coming out with is kind of this culmination of like, oh, here we've been together for 10 years and it's like we took it took us that long to kind of develop our voice and what who we are as 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 a group and the other albums are really great and i'm really proud of them but they're that they're they might not be like quote unquote like the finished like cooked yet perhaps um and so this one feels fully baked um fully developed in a in a, a specific like oh this is the voice of invoke which is really awesome to, to feel um so i don't know if we've like broken out yet i still feel like maybe a couple of years ago when we got we won a competition people like oh there's invoke they've been working and and now they're here i guess i don't know it never really felt like we just like suddenly like got out so i still feel like we're in the trenches a little bit but yeah sure sure i'm and, and, and you know nick something that i ask a lot of people, a lot of uh, artists who record is the approach to recording versus live performance. I imagine that many people will uh, hear this recording and imagine, you know, what it's like to hear Invoke live, just jamming, really going for it. But it seems like actually recording must uh, require a more systematic approach, or, or maybe it doesn't. Maybe, maybe these recordings are the result of just jamming with the mics on. Well, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, we have the kind of the opposite process of what you would consider like a normal band. You know, normally a band like records the album, they put out the album, they kind of hype it up, and then they tour on that album for a year or whatever, and then they go back and record the new one and then tour on that one. We kind of do it the other way. So we write all the music, kind of play it live for maybe a year or so, that's where we feel like our fine tuning happens. You know, we play, we're playing live all the time. We're kind of switching up our set often. And so that's where we kind of workshop and hone our pieces. And then once we feel like they're kind of ready to go, then we go in the studio. And then it's kind of a simple process when we're actually in the studio is we just play the song like we've been playing it live, you know, for the past year and kind of go patch up some stuff and then uh, call it good. But in terms of the writing process, um, most of the songs on this album are pretty well written out. I mean, there's some solo sections and, and whatnot, but you know, if you asked us for a score, for example, for anything on the, on the album, we have them, uh, for, I think almost all of it, maybe with one or two of exceptions for me when I was too lazy to write a score, just <laughs> <laughs> sent demos to the guys here, play this. But, uh, but you know, we write, we tend to write a little bit more like a traditional classical group like we have scores we read scores in rehearsal um and then just over a period of time we kind of memorize them change things up you know we kind of edit as a group um and then when once we get into the studio you're kind of hearing the result of all of that process usually over you know say six months to a year uh, and so we're already like now we you know we just got back we were in iowa for a few days and we're playing a set that includes a couple things from this album but it's mostly new material. It's mostly things that uh, that we haven't recorded yet. So it's always interesting being on the road and people ask us like, oh, I love that one song. Like, which album is that on? It's like, well, the one that's going to come out in, you know, 2025 or gotcha. whatever. So, gotcha. 
So yeah, that's a little bit, that's like our, the life cycle of our recordings goes something like that. And it that. looks like you've also, at least in the past, performed with orchestras. So are these scores that you create um, expanded in that way? Like, are you writing the flute part or, or how does, how does that work? Well, so the orchestra stuff that we've done is up till this point is specifically the Benjamin Lee's string quartet concerto, which is a very kind of, uh, not very well known piece, but we really enjoy playing it. It's kind of like if, uh, you know, if Copeland was more Bartok mm. is kind of the vibe of the piece. Um, and you know, it, it's, it's really fun to play. It's challenging for us and for the orchestra. Um, but more recently we're actually offering, um, our music with orchestra. So we haven't done this yet, but you know, there's some stuff in the works, uh, for both our, our stuff and our, um, our most recent commission, which is uh, Jonathan Bingham, Lessons of History, which is a beautiful piece that he wrote us. We actually met him at Howard University in D.C. He now teaches at San Francisco Conservatory. I mean, he's he's crushing it. And um, so we've been playing his piece for a couple years and we kind of had the harebrained idea to do it as a little bit like a concerto grosso. So like it, it involves some singing. It involves all of this beautiful string writing. So. We're hoping to do that. Awesome. Soon. Awesome. Stay tuned. Yeah, And I wanted to, uh, you know, sort of shift Zach into, you know, this idea of folk music historically as it has existed historically um, in the classical world. You know, there's been this long tradition of staying uh, separated from the world. So, you know, if there's something going on in politics or if there's some movement, you know, going to the concert hall to hear Brahms is your respite from from all of that. Conversely, you know, I'm thinking about folks like Pete Seeger, who couldn't separate, you know, his music from his activism. I wonder if that plays a role at all for Invoke or um, for for either of you as uh, individual musicians. Yeah, I, I, I guess, I guess that's a that would be going back to maybe your first question, like should classical music you know, is it evolving? Is it kind of die? How's it feeling? I feel like that part should die. <laughs> that part of, of, of music, <laughs> the, the music, the concert, the classical concert hall, you need a, 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 a safe space for old traditions seems like silly. Um, I don't know. To me, that's my ethos. Like maybe, maybe, maybe there exist. maybe there should be a space for that. For people and I, I don't know but for me i i really like jonathan's piece he wrote you know in like at a time in 2020 when or you know 2019 and with a lot of political un unrest and he him feeling disenfranchised from a, a lot of his training so i feel like lessons of history is a very powerful piece that that should uh hopefully uh evoke some um, want for for change and some want for I don't know just a, a political politically shifting like realizing like this the system we have right now isn't working we're just doing the same thing over and over again that's kind of the the theme of lessons of history is the constant repetition that humanity seems to put itself through um, particularly in the United States mm -hmm. is is yeah frustrating and I think that's great I think you should be able I think I think that's what is cool about um 
maybe the shift in our peers wanting to just represent what the like the music they want to hear and the and the messages they want to have are being more present on stage. I think for institutions like a, a big orchestra that can be hard with so many like who is the individual voice of the orchestra it's like but i think that people some orchestras are moving in a really good direction maybe some aren't but uh yeah i i, I love that i, I love the, going to a concert that makes you actually think about things and that are important to people i guess yeah, what do you think about that, Nick? I mean, and again, especially considering that uh, Invoke is a Texas-based ensemble. I, I've, you know, I, I don't make it down to Texas a lot, but I am very aware of what I see on the news and read on the internet about what's going on down there. Is is that that is there that interplay between the music making and sort of the social justice political activism? Yeah, I mean, that's yeah, it's a it's a crazy time to be you know an american and also be living in texas i mean there's um you know there's there's as everyone knows there's tons of issues there's um you know but i think as as our group you know one of the things that has always been important to us is um as zach was saying like uh individual voices and not shying away from these um these issues so that's that's actually kind of what what spurred our um commissioning project in the first place you know it's our commissioning project is american postcards and we ask composers you know very open-endedly just speak about your experience as an american or with america um with the united mm -hmm. states uh and so you know the, the the voices that come out of that have always been really interesting you know um and jonathan's in particular is just a, a beautiful example of that and you know it also not just limited to texas but we play in you know we've especially over the past couple of years we've played in tons of rural areas you know small towns of you know a couple thousand people and you know we're playing uh this music by uh by modern composers who are speaking on their specific American experience that is, you know, incredibly different from people who, uh, people who live in, you know, kind of the middle of Arkansas or the middle of Iowa mm -hmm. or, you know, all the places we've been. So we feel like it's kind of our, um, maybe not necessarily our duty, but one of the advantages of being, of being us is that we're kind of like, sometimes I feel like a, like a sleeper agent in the classical music sure. world a little bit where like we have the opportunity to you know we come in and we're like yeah we're a string quartet don't worry about it and then really what we're doing is we're trying to challenge people and um, excite them and expose some, them to something that's that's different or makes them think in a different way so i think that's you know that's one of the perks of the job it's also one of the challenges you know and obviously us being you know for kind of middle class white guys is is a challenge as well so we try to bring in different voices through the postcards project um to help with that um but it's just you know it's an interesting field to be in where we're kind of towing that line where we can get on the you know very traditional classical series and they're still kind of letting us free to do whatever we want and kind of say whatever we yeah. want so um that's you know it's it's a challenging position to be in but it you know it's i think it's really interesting and it's um overall it's hopefully pushing the 
classical music world to be a little bit more um, open and just think a little harder and more deeply about what we're programming. I'm glad that you mentioned audiences, uh, something that's been explored on this show uh, for years at this point is the idea of specific aesthetics, musical aesthetics, and the baggage that people have with them. So for example, if I'm uh, I'm in New York, so I don't drive a car, but, but let's say I'm somewhere and I'm driving a car uh, and I have some hip hop turned way up. People don't have to hear any lyrics. They don't have to hear anything but those drums and feel a certain way. Uh, I think the same applies to some of the aesthetics that Invoke creates. There are just general sounds that some people are either unfamiliar with or approximate to venues where they feel like they would be unwelcome, you know, all, all those sorts of things. I wonder, uh, I'll, I'll start with you, Nick. I wonder how you sort of uh, react uh, to that dialogue, this idea of aesthetics being connected to people's sense of uh, belonging or discrimination or everything in between. Well, we, I feel like we've actually been rather impressed at how open audiences are. I think sometimes the, you know, the gatekeeping tends to be on like the higher level. Um, so, you know, we'll have trouble or it's been, you know, it, it's been easier lately, but sometimes, you know, we've, we've had trouble kind of selling our ourselves, quote unquote, selling ourselves to more traditional series where they're like, oh, I, I think our audience is, you know, our audience wants Haydn and you're bringing them you know, Jonathan Bingham and your own original songs. Mm -hmm. So what's the deal with that? You know, how can we, what can we kind of entice them with that then they will, um, they will kind of go with that. But I think, you know, we found that audiences are actually more, perhaps more receptive than, um, than many kind of like presenters, programming offices, et cetera, uh, believe them to be. And, you know, people are understandably scared about the bottom line ticket sales and all that stuff and um but i think you know giving giving audiences kind of the you know respecting and trusting that they will understand what you're doing is a big part of it um and uh you know we found that if you present you can you can kind of present anything regardless of the connotation or the you know historical context and as long as it's genuine as you present it genuinely um in in an understandable format, then I think audiences will appreciate it. I think we've, you know, we've seen plenty over the past hundred years of kind of challenging music presented poorly. Mm -hmm. We see a lot of that. Uh, so I think, you know, it's, it's not the challenging that's the issue. And, you know, as Zach mentioned, like both of us are totally game to be challenged. And I think a lot of audiences are, uh, they, it just has to be done in a way that kind of respects their um, you know, their life experiences and where they're coming from, um, and the traditions in a, in a certain way, it shows a, at least an understanding of whatever traditions that then you're going to go change or, you know, build upon or what have you. So Zach, how, how would you sell, uh, what invoke creates to people who might feel a way about what they call country or bluegrass or folk. Oh, that's not for me. That's, you know, that, that has nothing to do with me. I'm, I'm, I'm sure you've had to um, convince a few people <laughs> along the way that your music really is for everyone. It can't engage anyone. Yeah. Well, uh, 
I think the way that I have like in the past convinced people is just by having, you know, going out to eat and listening to music together and being like, you know, making the connections from, well, this is the, well, okay. I think that everybody, maybe not like depending on, well, I'm not, everybody's very big generalization, but I, I, I feel like there is a music has the ability to yeah change setting and aesthetic. But I think that, um, what am I trying to say with this? It doesn't need to have music doesn't need to have those boundaries that we give it. So the music doesn't need to exist in mm-hmm. the broken spoke, the honky tonk bar in Austin. It, and it doesn't need to necessarily exist just in, um, you know, the concert hall as well. And I think sometimes those physical boundaries that we give music um, also then um, put those boundaries up in our, in our mental spaces. So, but a lot of people have been to the club, have been to the honky tonk, have been to the concert hall um, um, maybe, maybe the concert hall the least for most of our generation, but, um, I feel like we can all like understand those spaces. And I think something that we're trying to do, um, is just to have a good musical evening kind of with people. So no matter what space we're in, mm-hmm. we're trying to just present the music that we love to listen to. Um, and if you can make those connections to being like, you had a good time here, you had a good time here. We're just, we might be playing the music that's from over here and in this spot right now, but you've had, you've had a good time then. So you should have a good time now. And it's weird. Sometimes I think uh, if you respect the, if you kind of frame it that way, it's like, and then, it, and then give the people the respect and the space to, make those connections like oh i grew up listening to um you know pete seeger but i also like listening to shostakovich in the concert hall but i also like um rihanna giddens you know it's like you can have all of those like you can have all of those things and i think what invoke is trying to do is just to have all of our cakes and eat it at the same time i don't think we're trying to necessarily differentiate does that make sense a long time yeah, it does. Yeah, yeah all exactly. all of the cakes. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, how can folks uh, learn more about Invoke and uh, check out this album that's coming out? So we have we'd love to connect on a so, like on social, uh, mostly on Instagram and in Facebook, and um, you know, Invoke our tags are Invoke Sound because Invoke is already taken, um, and you can also go to our website InvokeSound.com and. Uh, our album's out on the on October 27th. You can pre-order now on the Sono Luminous website. That's our our you know the label we're working with. We're excited to you know Nick described this as baby's first album uh, label. So we we've always been doing self-produced albums, and this is the first time we're working with somebody. So we're really really excited about that. And uh, yeah, we'd love to connect on some um some form some virtual form we, we're generally responsive so yeah thank you loki really appreciate it 
Oh, of course. Uh, Nick, I'll, I'll throw my last question at you. You know, we uh, have so many uh, classically, so-called classically trained musicians out there these days who have a much broader perspective than I had when I was in music school, maybe when, uh, when, when the two of you were in music school. But that pathway toward, you know, that divergence from the norm isn't always so clear. I wonder what you would say to the musician who wants to break out from, you know, playing the box chacones and all of the etudes, but doesn't quite know how to do so. Sure. I think, you know, see, seeing what your kind of inspirations and influences are doing is always uh, an interesting uh, way to, to get ideas. I think, no, especially now, and, you know, I'll just speak to my experience being in school. When I started school, and I think it's in many ways, it's the same now, you you kind of think, oh, I'm, uh, you know, I'm studying an orchestral instrument. I'm going to take auditions. And then after a certain number of auditions, I'm going to have a job and that's going to be my job for life. And I think that's, you, that is still a path, but it's not the, the path in the way that we were told. Um, and I think there's, there's so many people out there doing interesting things, you know, even, uh, with invoke, we invoke is a, you know, large majority of what we do. But we also all do our kind of own individual little like uh, side projects and, um, you know, and uh, other kind of related career paths that that aren't necessarily uh, strictly classical. So I guess as far as advice, I would say follow what you're interested in um, and see who's doing that and, uh, you know, and just reach out to them. Because I think, uh, like you mentioned, the people people nowadays who are a lot more, um, you know, interested in many more diverse things in the, in the music field are open to m much more open, I think, or not necessarily more open, but just in generally, uh, uh, available to, to kind of give you guidance or, or support, you know, it's very, it's a, it's a very supportive community, especially the, I feel like the more, the, the, the more diverse someone's career path is, the more willing they might be to to kind of speak about it and be open about it. So just follow your interests. That's the title track from Invoke's latest album, Evolve and Travel. Definitely an aesthetic that uh, <laughs> I don't dive into every week here on Triloquy, but it's good to get that down-home flavor every day down again, right? Congrats to Invoke on their latest project, and a huge thanks to Nick and Zach for joining me this week. Okay, to get us into this week's Triloquy, I'm going to play some audio for you. This is the late James Baldwin on the Dick Cavett show, where he explains to the host and other guests why he felt the way he felt about the state of things here in America. Take a listen. 
I don't know what most white people in this country feel. I can only include what they feel from the state of their institutions. I don't know if white Christians hate Negroes or not, but I know that we have a Christian church which is white and a Christian church which is, which is black. I know as Malcolm X once put it, that the most segregated hour in American life is high noon on Sunday. That says a great deal for me about a Christian nation. It means that I can't afford to trust most white Christians and certainly cannot trust the Christian church. I don't know whether the labor unions and their bosses really hate me. That doesn't matter, but I know I'm not in their unions. I don't know if the real estate lobby is anything against black people, but I know the real estate lobbies keep me in the ghetto. I don't know if the Board of Education hates black people, but I know the textbooks they give my children to read and the schools that we have to go to. Now, this is the evidence. You want me to make an act of faith, risking myself, my wife, my woman, my sister, my children, on some idealism which you assure me exists in America, which I have never seen. So I posted that clip on my social media uh, earlier this week. And I'm, and now that I think about it, I'm pretty sure that I've shared this on Triloquy before. But uh, it, this was on my mind because I've been dealing more and more with orchestras who will say one thing and will do another thing. I think the evidence of the power dynamic, you know, at play in this orchestral ecosystem is clear because if I called out those orchestras who excuse me, uh, these orchestras who I, you know, have been in dialogue with or been in proximity to um, and how they aren't really doing shit for anything. There'd be some person, you know, some individual, white or otherwise, ready to punish me, quote unquote, for speaking truth to power. But at the end of the day, you know, I don't need to call out any particular orchestra. You know, as Jimmy said there, as James Baldwin said, this is the evidence. What orchestra can you name whose musicians represent the diversity of America or even their local communities? I don't know if orchestras hate black people, but I know that we're extremely scarce in their ranks, you know, to to put what James Baldwin was saying next to this idea of classical music and diversity uh, among orchestras. Uh, I'm, uh, in preparation for this, I went over to the League of American Orchestras website um, to take a look at their latest research study. For years, folks have been quoting a study from, I think, back in 2011 or, or 2012, but uh, they came out with another diversity study um, earlier this year in 2023, and it shows that Black people still make up less than and 3% of orchestral musicians in the United States, despite the fact that we're almost 13% of the population. Now, conversely, white folks make up about 60% of the population of the United States, but almost 80% of orchestral musicians. Latine individuals make up about 5% of orchestral musicians with folks who self-identified as Asian or Asian American coming in at 11% of orchestral musicians. Now, I don't want to start any intra- BIPOC fights, you know, but, you know, in this conversation, I think we need to think about the fact that you have populations of people who showed up after Afro-Americans, after the African diaspora made it to the United States, and still they are finding more success um, as far as representation in these orchestras as black people. I think that's an interesting point and something very important to think about as we continue to have this conversation. So what do you think about it? What should I think about this? A question that I'm always mulling over. But what's really important to ask, in my opinion, is what traditional orchestra is qualified to talk about their successes when it comes to diversity, considering data like this and considering just what we see in the field? I say traditional orchestras because there are indeed plenty of all black ensembles. You know, there are um, I'm thinking about uh, quintet, uh, uh, Quinteto Latino. You know, there are groups that focus in on the um, Latine diaspora. I'm a uh, 
out to the Asian Opera Alliance. I'm sure there are some um, other ensembles that are more aligned with those communities. But, you know, they aren't a part, you know, all of these groups, they aren't a part of the brick and mortar institutions that maintain the status quo of classical music by and large here in America. So that's why I think it's important to really look at these orchestras when we're having this conversation. Let's pull James Baldwin back in. He talked about the labor unions, the Christian church in America, education, all of these institutions whose status tells the story, not what they say, but what they look like right now. I think he'd definitely include orchestras in his statement if he were asked about it back then and certainly today. So what does this mean or what should this mean? In my opinion, for me, it means that I'm not in the position to trust that any orchestra is actually dedicated to making change outside of the traditional methods. If you want a diverse ensemble, Higher toward that goal. It's not that complicated from my perspective. And I'm speaking as someone who's worked as a musician and now someone who's managing an orchestra that A, is very diverse and B, is very diverse because we don't go through that traditional audition sort of framework for hiring musicians. That's another story. But for you, I think it means that you need to consider the degree to which these mostly, if not all white ensembles are centering music and culture that has little or nothing to do with you. And this isn't an us versus them issue at all. I think it's incumbent on all people of all races to understand this disparity so that we can see what's really at the root of it all. We have institutions that were founded and codified during Jim Crow and some even during slavery, and they look very similar now to what they look like then. Don't get me started on people of color who go along <laughs> with this by sitting on those stages and playing the same old dusty music, but alas, we continue to have the conversation toward the same goals, and things don't seem to be changing. I mean, just ex extremely, uh, extremely small-scale change over the years as this League of American Orchestras report showcases. I said it um, to a program officer uh, at the Mellon Foundation uh, about a month ago, and I'll say it here. If it were up to me, the doors of every orchestra across the country would be closed until they figured out how to assemble musicians who fight against the racial tradition. This is what it means to be anti-racist as opposed to just simply not being being races. What would you say should be done about these ensembles and their structures? Are you okay with things looking the way they do in classical music? Are you comfortable buying tickets and supporting these organizations? Are you okay with being a part of the problem as a musician or a staff or board member of these institutions? Something's got to give, but I'm hopeful that we see good examples out there to break down this status quo of so-called classical music about orchestras like the American Composers Orchestra. I'm thinking about Sphinx. I'm thinking about the Gateways Music Festival, Color of Music. You know, all of these institutions that are outside of those big structures, those big traditional orchestras, they're showing what this progress can look like and the and the uh, and the means by which that we can formulate and cultivate this diversity. Um, but some of these traditional institutions you know, just have to find the courage to do what they got to do to shift things around. And that's just that. And that's what I have for this week. Thanks as always for tuning in. Always appreciate the support. I will bring y'all an, uh, an opus of Triloquy um, next week uh, during so-called Thanksgiving. So feel free to circle back then as you're digesting your uh, turkey or whatever else you eat on Turkey Day. And I'll talk to y'all then. In the meantime, have a great weekend. Peace. Peace.